Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on getting to know God better. For those of you who are here just for the first time, we've been talking, our series is called Growing and Knowing Him, and we started talking last time about His salvation. When we kicked all this off, we talked about uh, the man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And we're all fine with that. That is a, it's a wonderful goal. But as we go through our lives and in different churches, we would have to admit that there are a lot of people that don't have a clue as to what that means, uh, glorify God, and how do you do it. And there are an awful lot of long faces there that you think, well, if that's enjoying him forever, that doesn't look very enjoyable. If this is the abundant life, what would the opposite be? And so one of the things we explored was, well, what is it? That's the goal, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How can we progress toward that goal? And one of the main means for that is to get to know God. That's what Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we saw in, uh, with Moses that that's also a desire, a thing that he prayed to God, Lord, I want to know you. But you think, well, that's, we talked also that that's easy to say, but he's invisible, intangible. You can't hear him, touch him, taste him. So that's sort of an elusive sort of a thing. And then we looked at Moses' prayer where he said, Show me thy ways that I might know thee and that I might find favor in thy sight. And that as we get to know God's ways, uh, the same way we get to know the wind, we see the waves of the ways of the wind, and when it's bl blowing a little bit, what kind of sound it makes, what kind of mo movement that's there, and when it's a, a larger wind, etc. So even without seeing the wind, we can get to know the wind by getting to know its ways, and in a much larger way, we can get to know God by getting to know His ways. And we began to look at getting to know God in terms of uh, one of His ways is His way of salvation his way of salvation. And I'm not meaning, I'm not restricting this just to our traditional little gospel presentation, which is obviously the heart and driving force and the key focus of salvation. But actually everything that God's about is about salvation. The whole Bible is about this. The, the one Bible verse that most people could quote is John 3.16. And what's that about? It's about salvation. So that's really something very key in getting to know who God is. And we see all the way through the Bible, God's always in the business of saving from giants, from sickness, from enemies attacking, from sin within, from Satan. And eventually his goal is to save us for heaven and from hell. I remember one time when we were at a uh, cookout at a house in Argentina and they had a pool, and Caroline was two-ish, three, and she had on her little outfit, bathing suit or something, and when he was sitting, we were all sitting talking, and, but Wendy kind of had a, the mother's eye on Caroline, and all of a sudden Caroline kind of took a step down on the little step, you know, and, and took another step and was going along, and finally she'd walked off the end, and her feet were no longer touching the bottom, and she, the water was right about here over her head. And she was sort of looking around like this, you know, like, what do I do now? And Wendy was up out of her chair, you know, fully clothed, you know, not, not for swimming, and leapt into the pool. It was very dramatic. I'm just sitting there, you know, but uh, watching all of this, it's just wonderful. But uh, the only thought in her mind at that point was salvation. 
to save Caroline, and she did. And isn't it wonderful that that's one of the biggest things in the heart of God? When uh, he sees our need and sees our plight, that he, the reaction of his heart isn't, well, this is entertainment. Look, they're going downhill and they're going to crash. You know, we sort of take a, a perverse sort of a pleasure at seeing things crash and some die or burn, or particularly little boys, I guess, but some of us never get over that, and we like these movies that, you know, all these terrible things are happening. But in God's heart, he says, what, I, what really excites me is saving people from all manner of things. Now, when you think about saving things, you normally think about saving things of value because they're things you throw out every day. In fact, it's, I don't know if you're a one trash can family or two, but we have two of these big green containers, and it's good because sometimes we need them both. So you don't save everything. I mean, what would your house, it already looks pretty full, doesn't it? Even with all the things you throw out. What if you didn't throw anything out? What if you saved everything? You may have a spouse that does, you think. Now, I used to collect things, and I would, I would collect sticks and rocks and coins and miniatures. I love collecting things. But when we think about what does God collect, well, God collects people. And he, he gets us in a kind of a banged-up state, you know. And then he, he, he works on us. But his goal is to save us. And you, that's really one of the biggest puzzles of all. Cows don't give him any trouble. Cows seem to be, I don't know, I don't know if cows are, don't seem to be sinners. Uh, they just seem nice and, and uh, just standing. I mean, have you ever seen a fist fight of cows? I mean, I guess they lock horns. But in general, they seem to be a pretty peaceful lot. If we were all out together in the field for three or four years, we would probably get in a lot worse trouble than the cows do. But God doesn't collect cows. He collects people. And you think, this is really puzzling because we're the ones that are the biggest trouble for him. What a puzzle. Why would he want to save us instead of just throwing us out with the trash? And how can you decide how much a person is worth? Because you only save things that are of value. And why would God save us if we had no values? So last week when we were looking at the things that we discovered in Habakkuk chapter 3, we realized in there that type of star-spangled banner song there in, uh, in that chapter of Habakkuk, it talks about two major events, Sinai and the Red Sea, that talk about God's way, some of God's ways, two of which are his revelation and his salvation. Sinai being the greatest revelation in the Old Testament, the Red Sea experience being the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament. Now when we think about his salvation, different things come to mind. <clears throat> Most people think in terms of saved in the past from sin's penalty. And we learn about justification by faith and that as you uh, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God says that he will justify us. He will look at us just as if we had never sinned because of the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. But there's also an aspect of salvation in the present that his plan is to be saving us in the present from sin's power. Now some of you may, thinking, may be thinking, well, I wish he'd hurry up. Uh, sin still seems to be pretty powerful in my life. And actually probably it is a long project that God has all during our life because our lives are sort of like the layers of an onion. And so even if you get a couple things covered, underneath that there are other things. Sometimes you have one particular area that's really, really big. And uh, you've been working on this, and, and maybe the day comes when you, you get the victory somehow for whatever reason. 
a program, a help, counseling, whatever, and, but finally that's basically under control, and then you think, well, my problems are solved, but you, what you didn't realize was there were a bunch of things hiding behind that big thing. So there are all, a lot of other smaller character issues, maybe other things that you didn't even notice because this problem was so big, and everywhere you walked and looked, that's all you saw. And I thought, well, th this is really my only problem. I could just solve that. Well, you solve that and you get behind and say, oh, I got several other things, you know, and it just keeps going as God works on us in this process of sanctification to save us in the present from sin's power. And there's an also an aspect of his salvation to be saved in the future from sin's presence. And we're all looking forward to that, even though we're not eager to jump in the grave or anything. But, but as far as once it's already happened, all of us can rejoice in the idea of being with the Lord in heaven, being with the Lord's people, never ever sinning again, being free forever from guilt and from sorrow, from tears that he will wipe away. Now when we think about his salvation... A lot of times, I think it's, uh, we talked, mentioned this last time, his salvation sometimes to be, seems to be different than what we imagined it was going to be or what we even wanted. There are times when you have tried to help your children, and <clears throat> frankly, when you are raising your children, your only thought is salvation. You just want them to live long and prosper. You know, the, what's that, the... That's from some TV show or something. But anyway, uh, the Vulcans or something. But you just want the best for them. And if they're in a problem, if you can help solve it, you want to solve it. Now, as time goes on, you realize if you solve all the problems for them, they won't learn how to solve problems. And so, and the day's going to come when you're not going to be around. And so you're kind of setting them up. But nevertheless, your whole motivation is for their good and for their salvation. And yet, sometimes their idea of salvation and your idea of salvation is different. They say, well, Dad, I'm in this problem and I need this amount of money. You say, oh, I'm so sorry. That's, boy, you should, that's a lot of money. Uh, how are you going to get that? Well, Dad, I was sort of hoping you would do that. Now, the child is thinking at that point, sa saving me would be giving me money. And the father is thinking, if I save him that way, I hurt him in another way. And so there's, uh, there's sometimes we have the same disagreement with God. We say, Lord, look at this. This is a mess. How are you allowing this? And he says, I'm saving you. What do you mean you're saving me? If you, would say, if you want to save me, I'll, let me tell you how to do that. Now, we looked at, at, at Habakkuk, how he was saying, the people of God, were, it's just such a mess here in Israel, in Judah. There's violence and there's bribery and corruption. God, bring revival. Help us. Save us. And God says, I, I'm already at work. I'm raising up the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. They're going to come in and they're going to kill half of you and drag the rest off into captivity. He says, that's salvation? Well, uh, he says, I've tried everything else for three or four hundred years. Nothing else less than that really turned them away from sin. And we mentioned last week that after that experience in the captivity that the Israelites, the Jewish nation, never again had that same struggle with idolatry that they'd had for a thousand years. The disciples at the time of, of Christ, they heard this message that Jesus, John the Baptist had preached, Jesus had preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, they got on board. This is great. We're, we're in the first wave. This is a winning campaign. You know, he's coming up for president. He, he, can't, he can't lose because he's he is the, the anointed one of the Lord. And so they were really upbeat. And their idea of he was going to save the nation of Israel from the Romans. Well, then he goes and gets killed. And, and this is all what, what God's big plan of salvation. And think, 
At least at, at that moment, they were thinking, that's salvation? That's not salvation. Sometimes we have a different idea of what salvation is in terms of our particular circumstances than what God has. Even Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What was he asking? Lord, say, if there's any way, save me from this situation. But he ended up going to the cross because there was a bigger issue at stake. And that's why it says in Hebrews 12 too, who talking about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? It was that we could be saved if he wasn't. And Paul, praying about that thorn in the flesh, he said, I prayed five times, please, Lord, save me from this thorn in the flesh. And God's answer to him was, if I save you from that, we'll have a bigger problem with your spiritual pride that this thorn in the flesh is keeping down. So saving you means leaving you with the thorn in the flesh. You see, there are a whole lot of things to be saved from. It's not just one thing. You know, if you could just say, it's just Goliath. Just knock out Goliath and we'll be fine. But there are all sorts of things that are in our lives. And we may be praying, Lord, save me from this bumblebee. And God knows, well, there's a lion over here. And if I don't get them out of the way, the lion's going to get them. So he lets the bumblebee sting me. And I go off to get it bandaged. Then the lion walks by. And all I'm thinking is, I asked him to save me from the bumblebee, and he didn't, and I got this big sting. And God knows, well, the alternative was a whole lot worse. You would have been lunch, uh, and you wouldn't have been able to bandage it. So, and then Hebrews 11, we mentioned this last week, but there's that long list in, uh, when he gets through naming names like Abraham and Noah and all those people who by faith did all these things. Then he gets into this just listing. He says, time wouldn't suffice to talk about all the people that have lived and died by faith. And he said some conquered kingdoms and others shut the mouths of lions. And then he said, goes into a second list, he says, and others had a different story. They were sawn in two, uh, they were devoured by wild beasts. And you think, wow, you know, how come God saved the first group and gave them great victories in the second group? They got chewed up. He says it was all victory, just different kinds of victory. So anyway, part of getting to know the ways of God is realizing that when we think about his way of salvation, we won't always understand everything that he does. And it's not necessary. As you get to know God, if you can just get to the point where you will trust him completely, he will take care of everything, and he'll do it in the best way. He just won't always keep you totally informed of all the details so that you always understand it all. He says you don't have to always understand it to rest in me. Now I want to cover just a couple of uh, applications that are, that are common and then I want to get into something specific uh, that maybe will give a little more light. The obvious applications of his way of salvation is to come to know Jesus Christ, to ask him into your life, to be your Lord and Savior and most of you have done that and so we won't cover that in great detail tonight but obviously that's the biggest uh, point of salvation is to receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. But that's not the only thing going on in our lives. Uh, just about everybody has some inner struggle, inner turmoil that you can't get away from because you can't get away from you. It may manifest itself in a whole lot of different ways. It may, may be emotionally, it may be some sort of addictive behavior, it may be some 
kind of reaction you have to certain people, and maybe a tremendous problem with anger, lust, greed, ambition. But as you have grown in Christ, you realize this is not pleasing to God. And there were other things in your life that once you realize God doesn't like this, you just dropped it. And yet there are these one or two things that are sort of like gristle. You just, it just keeps coming up. You think, well, but God, you know, I, I don't want to fall into this again. And yet I keep stumbling into it. And I, and I feel so bad. And I almost think, well, uh, how can I even ask God to keep forgiving me? I just keep stumbling into this. And sometimes I leap into it. I think, oh, this is terrible. And I'm supposed to be a Christian. This inner giant, this inner battle that uh, is just ongoing. Uh, your, your key area, uh, your weakness of the flesh. And in this area also, we ought to believe his promises that everything he is about is about our salvation. Not just when we die and for going to heaven. It's salvation in all of these battles. Now, again, his idea of salvation may be different from ours. He may know, just like the father who says, uh, instead of giving you that money, son, I'm going to let you work for it. Yeah, but dad, that'll take me three months. And to give it to me, I think, for you to give it to me, that would take five seconds. Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't be better. Because your main need isn't the money. Your main need is the muscle that you get by working for it. For not just the muscle in your arms, the muscle in your heart. To learn what's the value of a dollar, what's the value of working. And there are times that God, has, I believe, has allowed a particular giant to remain in our lives because he knows the alternative might be worse. How could it be worse? You think of that, that particular area of struggle in your life. You think, well, the greatest thing I can think of is, is that I not have to struggle with this anymore. Well, one alternative is just for God to take you on to heaven. But you're not thinking about that when you're asking, Lord, save me. You're not, thinking, you're not asking, kill me. You're just, I, just want, I just want relief, not uh, a funeral. And, but perhaps the Lord knows that if he gave you victory over that, you'd be so proud about it, he couldn't use you anymore. He says, at least with you struggling and back and forth in this area, uh, at least you're, you're staying nice and humble. You're easier to get along with. You're more merciful to others. And God knows how much victory we can tolerate and still be tolerable as people. But nevertheless, we should claim, pray, and believe till the day we die Every giant will fall before the Lord. Every fortified city will come down. It may not be today. It may not be in a month. But never give up hoping. When they went in to take the promised land, God says the main thing you need to never do is to make a peace treaty with the enemy. Never make a peace treaty. That, that was saying we're not going to go to war anymore. And some believers have struggled for 5, 10, 20 years with a particular area and they think, well, I must just be made this way. And so maybe for me it's not wrong. They try and find some other way because they're tired of the struggle or they just have quit believing that God could give them deliverance. And the exhortation from the Holy Spirit through the Scripture is never quit believing that one day you will be free in that area also. Keep calling out to the Lord, Lord, all, all that you're about is about salvation, and I need salvation in this area. Lord, defeat this giant as soon as it's within your will. And in the meanwhile, strengthen me to never give up hoping in you. We also need salvation in different circumstantial crises. Might be a health thing. These are things that kind of come in from the outside. It's not primarily a, 
a character issue or some a struggle, me with me, civil war inside, but just living in a fallen world. It might be a problem with a family member, economic situation, job situation. It's an outward crisis that uh, squeezes you, puts you under pressure, might be taking care of someone who's very ill or dying, and it, it, uh, it's just such a hectic, difficult time, not because of anything inside you, but nevertheless, because there's all the pressure on the outside, you see things popping up inside you that you also don't think you know are not very good. You're getting angry, impatient, barking at people, and you realize, well, this is just a mess. In those situations, too, the Lord urges us, believe me, dear child, I want to also be your savior in this situation. And it may be a long period of time. It may be God giving you the grace to go through something instead of saving you out of something. Even though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't say he'll helicopter in and pull me out of there. He says, no, I'll just be with you the whole way as you walk through that valley. But we should believe him to help us in all circumstantial crises and be praying. We shouldn't just assume, well, he's already about salvation, so I don't need to talk to him or ask him or anything. I just need to know that he'll come through for me. He says, you have not because you ask not. We must learn to persevere in prayer about these things. And finally, in facing death. As we go into life's final exams, that's what I view the last period of time, that whatever, whether that's a, a day or a year or a 10-year period, where it's, there are too many signs indicating that uh, the time of our departure is near. I, for my own life, I, I'm trying to understand that in terms of that that's my final exams in the Christian life. That everything else was in preparation for that last little period of time. And your final is a big part of your total grade. And in the final exam, the only one really in tune with what you're actually going through is the professor is God. Because nobody else really knows what you're going through. All the different things that are coming up, the fears, the regrets, the loneliness, all those things that uh, dying is a very lonely process. When you're born, you're surrounded by a whole bunch of people. But when, when the time is ending, even if you are surrounded by people, I imagine it's a more lonely time. And that's why our fellowship with the Lord all through our life needs to get stronger and stronger because that's when we really want to grasp his hand because it'll be the only hand we can grasp and we'll jump over the little ditch that they call death and we'll be with him forever. But he says, I'm going to be with you at that moment. And I want you, but I don't want you, uh, it's not just I'm going to be with you. Before it gets to that, I want you to already be counting on it, confident, trusting in me. Say, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready today, any day that you want me, here I am. Be ready to trust in him for that salvation. Now open up in your Bibles because we want to look at Exodus 14. That one other aspect of his salvation, and this has had a huge impact in my own life, and we want to draw a couple of ideas from this classic passage of the crossing of the Red Sea. In chapter 14, the Lord is speaking to Moses. In verse 2, he says, At this point, they've gone through the ten plagues, the Passover meal, and they've gotten all the presents from the Egyptians that are trying to hurry them out and say, Well, take this and take that. So they're all, they're really happy. You know, they're all going out and 
just had a great meal last night with the Passover lamb, and they're, they're, it's just a big day, and they're heading out, and they've gone, I don't know, a day or two, and God comes and says something very strange to Moses. Tell the Israelites to turn back, verse 2, and encamp at this, in this place between Migdal and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, says it twice, make sure they, didn't, they got it right, directly opposite this other place. And Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, period. End of quote. That's all he said. Now Moses, think about this. Now, this is a long process to get them to this point. They had this, ten whole horrible plagues over the whole country, and going to Pharaoh and coming back, and going to Pharaoh and coming back, and the Passover and all this, and they finally, finally, finally get out, and God says, hey, wait a minute. Turn around. I'm going to put you here, and it's going to look like you're being stupid, and you don't know where you're going, and I'm going to change Pharaoh's mind. Change Pharaoh's mind. It took us so long to get him to this point to say, let us go, man. Can't we just double the speed and keep going? You know, God says, I've got something else in mind. But notice God didn't say what it was. Did you read any, anything there in those verses about the Red Sea opening? No. no. No indication of how God was... God only sets up a problem. He didn't tell him what the solution is. And so, well, they do that. And sure enough, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. Verse 5. And they said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So they get all together and start charging out with 600 chariots and everything. And they, verse 9, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. Now remember, all of these soldiers had just come from a funeral, the funeral of their oldest son. They were not in a very good frame of mind. I don't know what normal frame of mind Egyptians were in, but this was probably a really bad day to have them coming out armed. Now Moses is probably thinking, God, we were really doing well. Uh, you, you should just leave well enough alone. But God had something different in mind. So as Pharaoh, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching about. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord, verse 11, they said to, to, the, to, to Moses, Oh, the Lord must have a wonderful plan. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are just trusting no matter what happens that God is going to take care of us. No, that's the Egyptian translation. Here, this, this uh, NIV says, Was it because... Now, note the sarcasm. You know, this isn't just, uh, You got a plan, Moses? Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Now, some of you have had to make a major move, and your children were not necessarily in agreement with that. And there were probably numerous times that they would have these kind of questions. You know, why didn't you just kill us? Uh, why didn't you just leave us there? What kind of parents are you? Uh, it's very difficult sometimes to lead your family, isn't it? Even if you are confident that you're doing what's best, but they have a different idea of what would be best. They said in verse 12, Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us Now, they followed out of Egypt, Moses, on their own legs and own free will, but now it's, hey, hey, this is all your deal. 
leave us alone, let us, serve, let us serve the Egyptians. We're having a great time serving the Egyptians. I mean, the whole exodus was because they'd been crying out for 400 years, get us out of here, get us out of here. Now they're saying to Moses, hey, we, we kind of had it pretty good back there. Why don't you take us out of there? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They were already projecting the outcome of the situation before it had ever happened. That is the evil heart of unbelief. And some of us also are very good at foreseeing disaster. Now, you may be married to somebody like that. You're a little more of the upbeat kind, maybe, maybe even too optimistic. Maybe your spouse thinks unrealistic. Foolish, even, your spouse might say. But as you have lived with your spouse, you say, yeah, but you're so fatalistic, so pessimistic. We just want to maybe put in a little margin, a little adventure, and say, oh, you're going to kill us. We're going to lose all our money. Uh, we're going to throw us out of our house. Uh, so Moses had this situation with uh, two million people. That's a lot of people to, to deal with that are being negative. But Moses answered the people, and he says, verse 13, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Now that was a safe thing to say. Because uh, they were either going to get killed or God was going to do something. But they weren't going to see him again. But come tomorrow, it will be taken care of one way or the other. But he says, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now notice verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? I looked that up. The word you, it's singular, not plural. He's not talking about the people. He's talking about Moses. Apparently when Moses was saying, don't worry about it, God's got it all under control, in his heart he was saying, oh God, what are you doing? Please help us. And God is responding to the silent prayer in his heart and says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on in the New American Standard says to move forward. Now picture this. They probably have mountains on each side. There's the sea in front of them. The Egyptians are coming behind them. Which way is forward? Then he says in verse 16, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land. Isn't it interesting at this point, God didn't say, Moses, I want you to stand back. I've got something to show you. And he parts the Red Sea. He says, Moses, that stick in your hand. I want you to pick up that stick, stretch it out like this, and I want you to divide the uh, ocean there, the sea. Right. You know, like, I've never done this, but I've never seen this done. He gets Moses to do this. Now, when you think about it, let's just suppose the e Egyptians weren't coming. And they're walking along with all their stuff and their gold trinkets and earrings that they got from the Egyptians, you know, and telling Hebrew jokes and all of this kind of stuff, patting the donkeys. And, and all of a sudden, you know, this little guy, Benjamin, pokes Reuben. He says, do you see something funny over there in the water as we're walking by? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's kind of, yeah, kind of weird. It's kind of like opening up there. Yeah, man. And it's opening up more and more. They, more and more of a crowd is kind of stopping and looking at that. And some say, go get your camera, man. And they're, they're taking shots of this. They're filming it. And, uh, and finally, it's totally opened up. And, and one little guy says, hey, I think that might be a shortcut. Why don't we go through there? Oh, you idiot. You know, we're not going to do that. We can't swim. We got our babies. We got our animals. There's no way we're going to go down into that trough. Who knows how long a natural one? We'll just call National Geographic, let them take some shots. We're heading on the safe road. 
The only reason they went through the Red Sea was because the Egyptians were behind them. God had orchestrated what looked like a disaster, and it became the birth of a nation. That's why, as God does strange things in our lives sometimes, he says, dear child, you must learn to trust me. I do have everything under control, even if it looks like it's a disaster. Verse 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Let's draw a couple of lessons out of that in terms of the ways of God, this way of salvation. The first one is, when things are at their worst, begin to believe God for his best. Now this really came out in my own life because in our first term in Argentina, it was relatively fruitless. We were full-time in the ministry and evangelizing students, and four people came to Christ. Only two of them were even students, but we were counting anybody we could count. You know, the kindergarten teacher came to Christ, and also the, the little store owner across the street came to Christ. So we'll count them too, you know. And uh, so four prayed to receive Christ, and two of them fell away. And of the two that remained, one didn't one went off to study the Bible with somebody else, and the other one didn't even want to be discipled. I mean, we had almost nothing to show for four years in the ministry, and I began to wonder, well, maybe we shouldn't even bother to go back to Argentina. And it was at that time in 1989, reading this passage, that I began to learn about some of these things, about the way God does things. And there are times when a situation is gray, it's bleak, and so you begin to pray because there's a need. Oh, Lord, help. Please help. And so God comes in, uh, figuratively speaking, with a bucket of paint, black paint. He pulls out the brush and he starts painting everything black. He says, Lord, it was already bad. Now it's getting worse. So he said, uh, cheer up. It could be worse. And you cheer up and it gets worse. And so you think, well, Lord, this is a terrible situation. Why would you allow it to degenerate even more, to get even blacker? And I think the Lord would say, because my glory shines brighter if the backdrop is darker. And I think what God is looking for when those things are getting so bad is he's, he's not watching the situation. He knows what's going to happen. He knew what was going to happen with the Red Sea. That was not a big puzzle to God. He was watching his people. Okay, let's see what they do now. Will they trust me, or will they call 911 again? Will they say with no evidence of their eyes, I don't know what the Lord's going to do, what he's got up his sleeve, but my God is a God of salvation, and I'm going to go to my grave believing that. And one day, he may decide to explain all this to me. That's his prerogative. But he is my Savior now in this situation and forever. And so we had a situation where we had no reason to return to Argentina, but the Lord used this passage to encourage me. Henry, I want you to go back to Argentina with no strategy, no team. The whole team had left. No, no church you're working with, no ministry, no idea of what you're... And just believe me for something great. Now that everything, you've buried everything. And so we went back to Argentina, and it was the best... 12 years of our whole lives. Same place. The Lord led us into a different ministry. 
But in that, with that black backdrop, then God revealed his glory to us in many ways in the ministry. When things are at their worst, begin to believe God for his best. Not because you see any signs of anything. No, no, no. Even better. There's absolutely no sign of hope. Great. This is a chance to begin to trust God purely by faith. Lord, I know you've got a great plan. I'm trusting in you. Second, in that situation, so important to act in faith and not in unbelief. The people here were acting in unbelief, panicking. Oh, no, well, what are we going to do? And, and talking all around and attacking the leader. And Moses was more a man of faith. And when God said, raise up your staff and part the sea, Moses didn't say, oh, that's so stupid. I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's going to really look dumb. I'm going I'm to do that. Nothing's going to happen. And everybody's going to laugh. Moses acted in belief. Well, move to the third one. To act in faith, not in unbelief. Realize that in your situation of need, when you begin to pray about it, it may initially get worse. And that's hard to deal with because you're, you're praying, believing, hoping for the best. And say, Lord, this situation is so bleak, so gray. And then it flip, switches over to black. and says, oh, why did I bother to pray? It's, it's much worse now. And God says, but it's not over yet. It's not the last chapter. Will you trust me even when things look that bad? Fourth, out of this passage, we realize God wants to do great things through you. He wants to do great things through you. I had a friend who in Argentina who wanted to go to Reform Seminary. And he'd already gone and studied English, and he was back in Argentina. And he found out that within one month, he somehow had to get $2,000 into a bank account in the United States, or his visa wouldn't come through, and the whole thing would fall flat. And so he was beginning, to, and in a month, there was no way to earn $1,000. We already checked out in terms of some of the scholarship stuff. There was no money. It looked like a totally closed door, and he was beginning to think, well, maybe the Lord doesn't want me to do it. And I said, listen, why is it that you're beginning to doubt that this is the Lord's will? Is it because there's something along the way in some way that God showed you this isn't what he wants, or is it just because there's a financial need right now? He says it's just because there's a financial need right now. That says, could it not be that God has set a situation up where you have an opportunity to trust him? And I read this passage to him, and I said, couldn't it be, Marcos, that the Lord now wants you to raise up your staff and part the waters? And by faith say, Lord, I'm just going to step out, trust you, do what I can, and trust that you'll do what needs to be done. Within a month, all the money was there. He just graduated from, from a form seminary. But because God took him through that experience, he learned so much for his own life. The issue was not the money. It was his faith in growing in that. God wants to do great things in you and also through you. Point five, God doesn't always pick the easy way. When we think of salvation, we think, man, you know, rescue now. Comfort now. And God says, well, we, we may be working on a, a, a lot of different things and some bigger things than what you're thinking about and what you can even know about. 
I need you to trust me. Some of the things I'll do now, some of the things will take a while. Some of the things I need to let the situation degenerate even more, but I'm at work. But will you trust me? The key is not, is God going to be faithful? He will be faithful. The key is, but will you trust him in the process? Or do you have to always see it to believe it? Sixth, there can be no great deliverance where there is no great problem. Don't you love those wonderful testimonies? People say, oh man, this was going on and this and that and the other. And then they prayed for me and everything changed. It's just wonderful whether it be somebody who was sick with cancer and now they're healed. Or they were a million dollars in debt and now they have a million dollars. Or they couldn't have children and now they got eight. Whatever it is, those are the kind of testimonies that just thrill you. If somebody says, oh yes, I banged my finger the other day and today it feels better. Is that a testimony? Well, I, yeah, it's, your, it's your story and everything, but we're not going to get you up in front of the whole congregation and say, I banged my finger yesterday and it feels better today. You know, Oh, that's a great testimony. Well, you're glad your finger's better. But the point is, great testimonies, watch it, grow out of great problems. Now, nobody likes great problems, but you'll never have big testimonies without big problems. Because that's what the testimony is. I had this problem, and then this is what God did. And that helps us sometimes view our problems in a different way. Lord, this problem is so big, you must be really getting ready to do something wonderful. See, that's a different way of looking at it. That's looking at it with the eyes of faith in a God who saves. And seven, God doesn't want us to look to other gods for deliverance. And think, well, God's not coming through for me. I'm going to start shopping around in other places. I'm going to count on money. I'm going to look to just my friends, my own inner resources. God says, I am the Lord your God, and only me should you worship. Only me, when you're in trouble, you call out to me. Now, it doesn't mean you won't take advantage of the things that God provides through people, through the body of Christ, through friends. But it does mean that where is your trust placed? That's why many caregivers sink. Because they're helping people whose trust is not in the Lord, it's in a person. And that caregiver is just another balsa wood floaty that they're trying to climb on because that person's going to save them. Our trust needs to be in the name of the Lord. Now, I brought something tonight as an illustration that is from uh, something you may have heard of a number of years ago, this Baptist church in Texas in, uh, I think, 1999, when a gunman entered Wedgwood Baptist Church and killed seven people and injured seven others before taking his own life. Remember? I see a couple of heads nodding. That morning had been the day of see you at the pole when students gathered around their flagpole in the morning to pray for their school and nation. It says what the media hasn't reported, however, is how God has been so evident both during and after the shooting. He has done amazing works. The pastor, Al, now watch this. The pastor had prayed something before all of this. What had he prayed? He prayed that God would do whatever it took to expand the ministry of their Baptist church. Our church is one that used to be, that is used as a model of how not to pick a location because no one in the world can find it. Now almost everyone in the world knows exactly where it is. 
He gives different things that are evidence of God's control during the shooting. This is getting into the details of so many acts of salvation of the Lord. He says, to enter the church, the gunman walked past our children's playground, which should have been full of kids, but for some reason every single children's and preschool class was running late. No one had made it to the playground yet. He fired over 100 bullets into a crowd of over 400 people, but only 14 people were hit. He did not shoot over 60 of the bullets he still had with him. The bottom fell off the pipe bomb he threw, and the bomb landed without it ever exploding. One of the youth that was wounded, she was shielding a disabled friend with her body, has scoliosis. The curve in her spine directed the bullet away from major organs, saving her from serious injury. I could go on on that, but I did. a couple of the things, what happened as a result of that shooting, and by the way, all seven who were killed were some of the most committed Christians in the church, so there wasn't any visitor that was, wound, that was killed. Our pastor has had the microphone in his face continually and has over and over given an outstanding answer to the reason for our hope. He has presented the gospel beautifully on Larry King Live when prompted by a question asked by Vice President Al Gore. Because of the live news coverage and interviews, over 200 million people have heard the gospel because of this tragedy. 15,000 turned out for a community-wide service at a football stadium. Uh, the pastor gave a very serious, challenging message for their fasting and heart-searching. It went out over the radio station that covered all of North Texas. CNN also broadcast the service live. Because one of the victim's families lives and works in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia allowed the services to be broadcast there as well which included a complete presentation of the gospel. In Saudi Arabia, it is illegal to say the name of Jesus on the street. Because of the same CNN broadcast, 35 people in Japan gave their lives to Christ. When President Clinton finally got through to him, the pastor ended their conversation by praying. At several schools, at one school, 25 students accepted Christ, at 110 at another. A teacher led 22 of her students to Christ in her classroom. Governor Bush came by several times, who later became our president. What did he pray? Lord, save us from barrenness. Save us from sterility. Do whatever it takes to use our church. And that was a hard thing. And only God can make those kind of decisions. But sometimes our idea of salvation is different than his. I'm sure the pastor, when he prayed that, that's not what he was thinking he was praying for. And yet, the Lord has done many wonderful things through that. And in the same way, we think, what a strange way for him to bring salvation to the world. To have his son mugged and, and nailed onto a piece of wood? That is an awfully strange way. But look, salvation is coming to the whole world because of that very strange way that he found to save us. Salvation is what God is about. And that's one of the ways that as we get to know him and grow in that, we learn to trust him no matter how deep the valley, no matter how dark the way, no matter how terrifying the outward signs are. That we, I know in whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Now we're, we're finishing now. Next week we're going to talk about his resurrection his resurrection. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 37. You're probably familiar with it, but look over it. It's the great passage, the vision of the valley of dry bones. We're also going to look at John 11 and the resurrection of Lazarus 
and see how this applies to many different areas in our lives as we get to know the God of salvation and the God of the resurrection. Let's pray. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for this chance to be with you tonight. We long to know you, to admire you more, to enjoy you more. Speak to us, Lord, to each one of us according to our own special needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.